Good morning. Morning. My name's Paul. If you're new here or visiting, I'm Paul, one of the, the leaders here. It's great to, great to see you this morning. If you've got your Bibles, we're in the short series in Romans, so if you want to open them at Romans chapter 12, we're actually in verse 3 through to um, 8 today. If you haven't got a Bible, there's one in the back of the seat in front of you, so just feel free to, to take to take that one, and we'll be working it through. The verses will be on the screen, but as ever, it's always good to see God's Word, what goes before it and what comes after it. It just helps us make sense of it as well. What comes to your mind when you think about God? I just pause for a minute. What comes to your mind when you think about God? So I say God, what comes to your mind? A.W. Tozer, who's a theologian in his book the knowledge of the holy said this what comes into our minds when we think about god is the most important thing about us what comes into our minds when we think about god is the most important thing about us it's a big claim dane ortland he, he wrote a, a book last year a couple of years ago called gentle and lowly great book if you get the chance to read it answered that question by saying this what should come into our mind when we think about god Oh, sorry, what should come into our mind when we think about God? That the triune God is three in one, a fountain of endless mercies, providing for us in all our many needs, all our failures, all our wonderings. He is a merciful Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is a never-ending fountain of mercy. It's overflowing towards us. And I think that's what Paul here, as he writes Romans 12, is thinking about when he opens up this, this chapter for us. He's actually appealing to them. He actually appeals to them in light of God's mercies, which he's been banging on about for 11 chapters in Romans 1 to 11. God's mercies, what God has done for us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, in light of God's mercies, we are to make our lives a living sacrifice. So every moment of our lives should be an act of worship. It should be lived in response to God's mercy, what he's done for us. God's mercy being active in transforming how we think and how we live. And in today's verses that we're going to come to now, Paul shows us how that right thinking in light of God's mercies is lived out in a church community. So verse 3, Romans 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith if service in our serving the one who teaches in his teaching the one who exhorts in his exhortation the one who contributes in generosity the one who leads with zeal the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness let's pray Father, thank you for how you give us your word. Father, help us to believe that you are here. Help us to believe that you fill us. Help us to believe that you are helping us by your spirit, lifting up our gaze, lifting us up to see the beautiful face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do that amongst us today. Be glorified in this place through my words and these words I pray. Amen. 
Okay, so I've got three kind of things that I want us to work through in this passage. And the first thing is that we are called to think in faith. That's verse 3. Let, us, let me read it again just to refresh our memories of where we're up to. So, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. If you were to pause just on this verse, just for a, a few minutes, you will see that Paul uses the same word three times in one verse. Think, 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 think. And this is obviously really important for Paul. In fact, Paul is going to say that this is central to the Christian life. And what he's saying here in this verse, if you were to look at the way he's put it together, this sentence, he's saying there's a right way to think and there's a wrong way to think. So what is this wrong way to think? Paul is really clear. He says the wrong way to think is to think more highly of yourself than you should. You see, Paul's original readers were the Romans, first century Romans to be specific. And there was kind of like a hierarchical society that you lived in. So the, the higher up that you were, the more power, the more influence you, you had, the more respect you, you had. And people would view themselves this, this way on this scale. They'd look, they'd look down and they'd look up and the status that it would give you amongst the people around you. And the Bible, it calls this, puts this under the umbrella of pride, which is a wrong understanding of self in relation to God. See, what pride does, it puts yourself at the center of everything. It makes us puffed up, conceited, arrogant, distorts our perception and how we view the world and other people. You see, pride is a wrong way, a sinful way to think about yourself and about others. But where the challenge is, I think, for us, living right here, right now, today, is that the culture that we live in celebrates wrong thinking. In fact, the culture that we live in says that what the Bible calls wrong thinking is actually right thinking. So our culture says, no, you should put yourself first. You should think of yourself first. And if you're struggling in some way, think more of yourself. Have more self-esteem. And what we do, we, we put ourselves on, a, on our own little scales. We compare ourselves to others. And we flip, don't we, between pride and insecurity, which are two sides of that same coin. And those scales, they could be personal. It could be the way that you've been made. It could be the way that you look, either happy with the way you look or not happy with the way you look. It could be your marriage. It could be comparing your marriage to others, thinking, well, your marriage is great compared to theirs, or my marriage isn't as good as theirs. Or even your spouse I wish I was married to such and such. Or maybe how alone you are. Or it could be an outer working of that personal life. It could be a job or a position. Actually, you feel good about yourself because of how successful you are in your career. Other people have told you you're good at it. You're secure financially. You've got a good house. You've got all the money that you need. You're able to go on some good holidays. Or it could be as Paul grounds it here in church. Amongst the family of God. In the way that you serve happy with the way that you serve in the sense of, well, you do more than others. The way that you care for people. Your evangelism and how much you tell people about Jesus. How much you give. We can feel a sense of pride. Sometimes we can feel a sense of entitlement. We can also feel self-pity or bitterness or resentment because of our place on this scale and how we function and how we understand ourselves in relationship to God. Sometimes we can even focus on what we think God hasn't done for us 
or we focus on what we do or give in comparison to others and it just distorts our thinking, distorts our perception and it robs us of our joy and it leads us to isolation. See, but the flip side that Paul is addressing here is that there is actually a right way to think, a renewed mind way of thinking. And he puts it under two categories. The first thing that he says is with the thinking sober judgment. See, sober judgment is understanding ourselves rightly in relationship to God. Paul, I think, opens this whole section up modeling this. He says it, doesn't he, right at the start of the verse that we're looking at, by the grace given to me. Who was Paul? Paul was an apostle. Amongst the church community, he had power. He had influence. He was apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no greater position in many ways. He planted churches. He wrote letters that we are reading to this day. He, raises up, he raised up leaders. He was a big deal. But he knew it was only by the grace of God that he was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a sober judgment of himself. And so he gave his life as an apostle, as a living sacrifice. Do you think in sober judgment about yourself? Do you think about your role or what it is that you do soberly to make a sober judgment about yourself? Are there areas maybe in your role and what you do that you may need to confess? Maybe you're drawn towards that wrong way of thinking that Paul is addressing here, to turn back to the mercy of God. But Paul also gives us a second way Thinking in sober judgment, according, he goes on to say, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What does this mean? I think this is one of these verses. These, this, this passage, chapter 3 to 8, are, are one of those passages we probably, we can read quick and think, I know what that means. It makes sense. But if we were to just pause and reflect and read what he's saying, I think maybe we catch ourselves and say, well, what is he saying here? What's going on here? What does Paul mean by this measure of faith that God has assigned? The implication seems to be that some might have been given more, some less. And I think underpinning a lot of this is that the antidote to wrong thinking, which is thinking highly of yourself, wrongly of yourself in relationship to God, is not to think less of yourself. That's not Paul's main point here. The antidote to wrong thinking is thinking in sober judgment and thinking in faith. So what does that mean? I've just got four things for us to help us understand this. First of all, okay, this is a principle that goes underneath this. To think according to the measure of faith assigned to us means that we need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our cultural thinking, the advice that you're going to read if you go to secular counselors, if you type in about mental health, if you type in about cognitive behavior, what you're going to get is going to put the gaze back onto you. It's actually going to hand you a mirror and it's going to tell you that the answer lies within you. But the gospel declares that the answer is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one of infinite and eternal beauty. He is the center point of human existence. And so as we see him by the Holy Spirit, we are transformed, the Bible tells us, from one degree of glory to the next. So that means if you're struggling with self-esteem, the answer is not to look at yourself, but the answer is to look to Jesus and esteem him and see what God does in and through you. We are to think according to the measure of faith. And faith looks away from self and pride to Jesus. Principle one. Second thing, thinking according to the measure of faith actually removes pride. Why? Because faith is a gift. 
I believe the gospel is clear on this. Ephesians 2 will be on the screen for us, verse 4 to 9. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Do you see the push there that Paul is helping us to see? Faith is a gift. Grace is a gift. Life is a gift. Salvation is a gift, all from our heavenly Father. You could potentially think, well, have I got more or less faith then? We immediately go into that comparison around other people. Uh, people. But thinking according to the measure of faith brings the realization that your whole existence is lived in the grace of God. God has not and never will deprive you of anything that is good for you and good for his people. Thirdly, thinking according to the measure of faith brings an understanding that faith is measured out differently. It's a challenge. This is challenging in many ways and can bring confusion, but, but, but let me explain this because I think there's true, true beauty for God's people here. See, the reality of that measured out faith leads to a greater interdependent unity in the diversity of God's people. People are all at different stages of faith. And it is something that God uses to bind his people together in love and service and sacrifice. You see, you read Paul in his other letters. What he does, he prays for believers' faith to grow. So our faith grows as they join in the work. Just give me one, let me give you one example. 2 Corinthians 10, 15, right into the believers. He says this, our hope is that your faith increases. It's quite clear that, isn't it? Our faith increases. As your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we might, may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. So as their faith grows, Paul's work and those around them, they will grow in their faith, they will grow in their work. So as they grow in their work, they grow in their faith. The reality is that our faith grows as we grow. And I think, I think we know that. I think we do. And we grow in our relationship with God and with each other. And folks, we're, we're not passive in this process. This is not a passive process. That is just God that, that does an ugly works through us. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. So what happens is that God does his work in us as we work out our faith. And so our faith grows. Did you see that? So God works in us as we work out our faith. We work out our faith and God works in us. There's a relationship that's going on between us and God. God grows us through our lives in faith. And he does it alongside other believers, all at different stages of that faith journey. And for those that have walked a mile, they will tell you that your faith can grow at different speeds at different points in your life. I've been an elder here for nearly 15 years. I could give you so many stories of how God has grown the faith of his people, mostly through suffering. And my own story, 
10 years ago, me and my wife, Bonnie, we sat in a car outside our, our house, about to enter into full-time ministry here at the church. And we asked the question, are, are we ready? And we both said yes. I'm not sure we were, because <laughs> that same year, God put us through three things which were really difficult to, for us. A couple of real, two real financial difficulties we faced. The, the death of a loved one from very close quarters, which was brutal to watch. The, the taking away of a relationship from me because of my Christian faith for a year. I was hard. God was saying through that process, do you trust me? He was growing my faith. Every year, just let me put it out there. Those who know me know this. I'm not a very confident leader in many, many ways. Every year, I cycle back around. Am I able to do this? Am I gifted enough to do this? Is my character okay to do this? Have I got enough capacity to do this? And God, 10 years ago, God gave me a, a word from someone really close to me, which is actually 1 Chronicles 4.10. And it was, God's going to enlarge your borders. God will help you to do it. Am I gifted, able to? No, but God will lead me through the task that he calls me to do. He was growing my faith as I stepped forward in light of the task that he called me to. Do you, do you see that? And all of us together walk alongside each other at those different stages of faith in a way that leads to greater unity, that we can walk together, that we can love one another, that we can display God's character to one another. And four, thinking according to faith, the faith that is measured out means that we see faith as the root of all spiritual gifts. Now, before we get there, because I think that's what Paul goes on to talk about, he actually leads us through the context that we work out our faith in. And our faith, it's worked out in a family, a body of people. So our growing faith is not done in isolation. So that's my second point that we're going to come to, belonging in faith, which is verse 4 and 5 of Romans chapter 12. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. See, in the gospel, God is always drawing a people to himself in Christ. From the start of the Bible to the end of the Bible, what we are seeing is God is in loving, intimate relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he creates a people to live an intimate relationship with himself and each other. And then after sin, he redeems a people to live an intimate relationship with himself and each other. He's preparing a place in the future where he's going to live an intimate relationship with his people, where they will live with each other. We are saved to be part of God's people, God's family, the body of Christ. So you read Acts, the formation of the early church, and what you see is churches are formed. We read the letters of the New Testament that Ben's going to be talking about next, next week in a clip. What we're going to see is that the New Testament letters predominantly are written to churches. God puts people in local churches for discipleship, to love, to serve, to grow together, to grow in faith together alongside brothers and sisters in Christ, to have the freedom to be exploring the faith, to have the freedom to be, I'm not sure how strong my faith is, can you help me to have the freedom to step towards others in their faith? in the place that he puts us. We're a people shaped by the mercy of God. Paul's readers are a people, all of them equal recipients of the mercies of God. See, Paul writing this, this would have been completely countercultural. Remember, they would have functioned in that status in all of their lives. But that gospel-formed community means that everybody is equal. They're all servants. The gospel leveled the Romans as a community, and the gospel levels us 
So to think in sober judgment according to the measure of faith assigned to us, what we see is a family of brothers and sisters around us, all covered by the mercy of God. And just two things to work out on that, that we here at Cornerstone Church Liverpool, we are a body. We are called, verse 5, to be members one of another. A body together, united. That means we, we walk alongside each other. We, we carry each other at times. There has been times in this church when others have carried me. There's been times when it felt like I've maybe carried others, pointing them to Jesus, walking alongside them. We celebrate together. We, we give to each other. We support one another. We encourage one another. We have a, a membership, covenant membership, and I said it right this week. Not covenant. I do apologize that I get a lot of words wrong. I'm from Raynal, and that covers all, all things. We have a membership as part of this local church. And what that membership does, it just helps us to walk this well. It helps us to do this. It's a place that we say, yes, we're committed. We are members of this body. If you're not a member here and you need to know more, please see one of the Connect team after the service. They'll point you in the right direction. And as elders, we've, we've looked at this and we really want to step into this in spending our time together this year as a body, as a family. So we want to gather more. Um, we're looking at twice per term, just on Sunday evenings, to hear from each other, to, to, to look at the future together, to, to pray to God together. So members, can I, can I call you please? Can you come along to that? For the sake of the church and for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ as part of this local body. But I think this verse also shows us the value of our gospel communities. You'll hear us talking about that a lot. So you can't do this. You can't be a body. You can't be a member in two hours per week. There's a lot of other hours in the week. So what we do is we function in, in nine smaller family units throughout the week. And it's an open invitation. You are invited to come along for one. That is along to one. That is how we live. It's how we function. It's how we serve as Christian brothers and sisters. It's the context that we do this in. So please come and get involved again. See one of the Connect team. We would love to point you along the way. See, in verse 4 to 5, we see a God-honoring diversity in the church. Paul actually highlights it again. Not everyone has the same function. And what we see now is that is displayed in the gifts that God gives us, where we see we lead into my third point, which is serving in faith, which is verse 6 to 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So we are to think in sober judgment according to the measure of faith that we have been given. And what that does, we see then the faith is the root of all spiritual gifts. So gifts are not merely natural abilities, but they are spiritual gifts. Gifts of grace, gifts out of God's goodness from God to be used for his purposes, which is the service of others. And like our faith, as he's just put the context in faith, hasn't he? Like our faith, our gifts grow as we exercise them in relationship with God and with other people. And so Paul is encouraging us here to use our gifts for the good of the body. And what we see is we look at this list that he's just laid out, we see spiritual gifts, the kind that we see in 1 Corinthians 14. And Paul highlights and draws out for us here prophecy. Prophecy being, in summary, in a, 
the way that God brings to mind words, pictures, that truths that would edify fellow believers. Look, we at Cornerstone Church, Liverpool, we believe that the gifts have continued here. But we believe that the Bible is really clear in how we are exercise or how we are to exercise them. We are to exercise them under and in line with God's word. So under the authority of God's word and in line with God's word. So we to exercise them and function in the gifts in love and with good order. In a way that others are built up. Not in a way that draws attention to yourself or puffs up. Do you see that theme that's coming through from Paul? See, it's drawing further on that point again. The gifts are to be exercised not in pride that direct the attention to self and help you as yourself to feel better about yourself, but they're to be used in service, service to God and his people. So our gifts, whether or not we think they are big, whether or not we think they are small, they're a tribute to God, not to ourselves. They're to be used in faith and in the service of others. And that theme underpins all that Paul is saying. You see, the next three that he gives, it uses quite a similar language. Service, teaching, exhortation. So he says, if, if it's service, if your gift is service, then, then serve. It's kind of saying with everything that you have. Service is not something to be looked down on. In fact, this place, folks, that you are all sat in, runs on people's service. Many of you have come here today trusting that people have exercised their gifts of service for you. It might be an opportunity for you today to show your appreciation to them. Encourage them. If you serve here, your service is a gift to us. Keep serving. If you don't serve here but want to, let me encourage you with the simplicity that Paul does. Serve. Come serve. If it's teaching, then teach, he goes on to say. Not sure how. What does that look like? I think I might have the gift of teaching. How do I exercise that? What does it look like to exercise it? Well, folks, meet up or start reading the Bible with someone. See what God does. Gather some folks from your gospel community. Ask people to meet. Open the Bible up. Gather some friends. Do with your children. See what God does. We were away a couple of weeks ago. The church in America, he was um, put together this seminary college. And one of the pastors we were with um, just recited this poem. Didn't look at anything. Just came out with this poem. It was like this. Started doing it word for word. And I was a bit blown away. I'm asking, how'd you do that? How'd, how'd you know that? He said, well, I read it as an eight-year-old. He was 42. And then once we started scratching below the surface a bit, he said he had an almost photographic memory. Blew me away. I've not I've come across with someone with a photographic memory before. But he was like, I haven't done anything to get this. He said it was something that God gave me to use for his purposes. And what he decided to do with his photographic memory was to go into Bible teaching. His family weren't Christians. They weren't happy. They said he should have gone to be a, a doctor or a, or a lawyer. But he said that God wanted him to use it to serve his people in the way that he was called to serve. If your gift is teaching, teach. Teach. And then there's exhortation. What is that? Well, that's calling people. That's starting things. That's rallying people. That's making things happen. That's gathering people. Do it. Exhort people to the glory of God. Rally people. Be the spark in the church, in your gospel community to make things happen. Build momentum in the church. Build momentum in your gospel community. Rally the Christians around you to go out and do things, to go and tell people about Jesus, to go and move towards people, gather people. Use your gift for good in the kingdom of God. See, I think with these three gifts that Paul highlights, there's a simplicity. He's basically saying, if this is your gift, use it. It's as simple as that, use it. 
which then makes us add the question, well, what's stopping you? Remember, Paul is he's calling people not to think wrongly. He's calling people to think in sober judgment and faith, which means stepping forward in faith, exercising your gift in faith. Romans 12, the theme of it as we're looking through here, implies, I think, that the gifts are also exercised at different stages of growth. So no matter how small you may think your gift is, we're called to exercise it in faith. And I think that what we see in the Bible is that that gift will grow. But remember that it's not about the gift. It's about the God. And God can use your gift in a way that you can't even imagine. And then I think Paul changes approach slightly. He said, he said, though the one who contributes in generosity. What's that? What's going on here? See, contribution, that means that God has given you resources. God has given you resources. Them resources, they, we automatically go to finances and money and possessions. That, that's true. It is. Of course it is. It could be financial. It could be possessions, but it could also be things like time. They've all been given to you by God to be used for his glory and for others' goods. Good. What Paul is calling people to here is generosity. What does generosity mean? It means giving extravagantly to someone or something. That's what generosity is, giving extravagantly. Giving the best you have to give, the best of your money, the best of your time, the best of your energy to God and his people. That's what Paul is leading towards us here, or us towards here. To be generous is to lavishly pour out what you have for others, to give of yourself. That's the implication here. So if you've been given a lot, ask the question, are you generous? Are you sacrificial? He goes on to say, if it's leadership, the one who leads with zeal. What is zeal? Zeal is, is passion and, and drive and, and energy. Well, I think the implication is not, you're not to lead in laziness. If you're a leader in the church or in any sphere, you are not to be needing to be pushed or cajoled. Especially the, the higher up that you may go in leadership, the less accountability you may face. We do it for God. We're to do it with a zeal for the kingdom of God, to be kingdom-minded. Not with any sense of personal agenda or desire for a platform, but it's all for God and the serving of his people. Look at Paul, an apostle. Look how he died to self to serve the people around him. Just read his letters and see how he could think and see how he could teach. So many of those letters, folks, are written from prison. That's leadership with zeal. And lastly, acts of mercy. I find this a really interesting one. Because what Paul says with acts of mercy, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, why is he saying that? See, those who move in mercy, and what we mean by that is maybe visiting, maybe encouraging, maybe helping, serving in specific ways and moving towards people. I think there can be a specific temptation for those who move this way to think that you're the only ones. There is, in a broken world, a constant cycle of people needing mercy. It's never going to stop in a broken world. And God has specifically gifted, yes, we are all called to do it, but God has specifically gifted people with resources and opportunities and the character to move towards people in this way. It might be certain types of people that you're gifted to move towards. 
But there seems to be an inbuilt danger here. It can lead to resentment or even bitterness, maybe jealousy for wanting another type of gift as you're exercising. And what Paul is doing here, I think, is calling people who do acts of mercy to do it with cheerfulness. Why? Because of the mercies of God. Because we think of ourselves with sober judgment. Because we think in faith. And because of what God has done for us, we're to live sacrificially and move towards other people with a cheerfulness because of what God has done for us in moving out in mercy. God gives us gifts of grace to be used in service to him and the church. So as we just kind of bring this to a close, I've got two things that I really want us to consider and reflect on. And I just want to give us a summary of what I think is being pulled through here. Firstly, thinking rightly means looking to Jesus. I was on an airplane a couple of weeks ago, and there's this, sounds terrible, a new window system. I don't know what, if you kind of gather, you know you've got those little holes in the wind, in the, the wind, the holes they're called windows, those windows on the side of the airplane that you look outside and you can see. They put these new kind of things. I've not seen them before. What happens is that you press a button and it's got like about 15 settings and you press a button and it goes from dark to light. So you can press a button and you can literally block out all the light that's coming through. But you can also press a button. There's like 15 different settings that, that the less you press it, the more light comes through. So it goes from being dark all the way to being light. And you get to do it. You get to press the button. Well, I'm, you know, obviously those who want to sleep, press it on dark. Or it's getting light, you press it on dark. But you can choose where that setting is and how much light you want to allow in. There's so many ways, folks, that we dull the gospel. So many ways. We can get distracted. So many ways that we dim the light of the gospel in our lives. That could be that we are focusing on the wrong thing. It could be that actually instead of just dimming it, we've replaced the, the window with a mirror. And we just want to look back at ourselves. We get distracted, we fill our sight and our vision, our dreams, our hopes are all focused on the wrong things and it stops us thinking in sober judgment with the measure of faith. Stops us seeing ourselves as part of a body or functioning healthy as part of a body. It actually stops us serving in the places that God calls us to. It distorts how we function and it robs our joy. We did a, like every Thursday when we, we meet as a staff talk about the service and we put together what we're going to be doing and I share what I'm going to be preaching and we talk about all the different aspects of the service and we start off our time together with a little devotional we just read a psalm we're literally just reading the psalms one after the other um, and then we pray it's as simple as that and we were in psalm 17 verse 8 and in it David asked God to keep him as the apple of his eye and it's a phrase, it was something that sparked the discussion and it kind of set me off just looking at what, what, what does that mean? What's going on here? And you, you see it a couple of times in the Bible. You see it in Psalms and you see it in Deuteronomy where the psalmist and the writer is talking about God keeping us as the apple of his eye. But it's also used in Proverbs for, for us to keep God as the apple of our eye, his teaching, his Lord, who he is. And on one level, I say, keep God as the apple of your eye. You kind of know what I'm talking about, don't you? It's a phrase that we know. It kind of means or indicates a person, there's a person that you value above all other things. Yeah, you, you agree on that kind of, we all heard that phrase, haven't we? The apple of your eye, we know that what it means. But isn't it a weird phrase? The apple of your eye, where's it come from? And as we looked into it, the, the meaning of the Hebrew is really, really helpful. It literally means little man of the eye. And what it is, it's a tiny reflection of yourself that you see in other people's pupils as you're looking at them and they're looking at you. 
So to be the apple of someone's eye, someone's eye means your reflection is in their pupil because they're looking directly at you. You're being focused on. You're being watched closely. Your image is central in the eyes of that person. Do you, do you see what's going on there? That's the directness of the gaze. Just reflect on that just for a second. You are in Christ the apple of God's eye. Is God the apple of your eye? What do you fill your vision with? What would we see in your pupil? What are you looking at? What do you think of most often? Is it family? Is it marriage? Is it loneliness? Is it work? Is it a person? Is it your dreams for your job or your life? Is it the ideal life that you have? Is it, a, it could be a whole load of things. But I think the call here, and what is on the pin in this whole passage in this whole chapter in Romans is that we are to make Jesus Christ the center point, the focus, the face that we rest our gaze on, to make him the reflection that people would see in our eye if they were to be able to see it. Jesus would be in our pupils because that's who we're looking at. That's where we're looking at. That's what our focus is on all the time. The key to biblical thinking, sober judgments, thinking according to the measure of faith that we've been assigned, the key to being a good member of the body, to, the key to serving rightly is looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Not doing more, not stepping in more. The first thing is look to Jesus as he transforms us. Second of all, what does it mean for you to serve in faith in the time that God has given you, which is now? That's the wonder of, I think, the church community and the messages that God gathers us together. It's now. We're looking ahead to this next week and the rest of our lives, God willing. How are we going to use them? So let me just ask you a few questions to help us diagnose a few things. Where is the tension or the discomfort in your life? And that may sound like a weird question, but I think we're inbuilt to move away from discomfort and tension. We move away to comfort, to where we're safe, where we're secure, where it's easy. Is it time to step towards the discomfort and the tension? To move out of your comfort zone? Don't let a desire for comfort or laziness stop you growing in your faith. Let me change it slightly. Is it time to stop letting insecurity and fear define you? Not stepping forward because we're fearful of something. Not stepping forward because we're insecure. We've fixed ourselves on that scale and we're looking up and we're looking down and we're not sure where we are. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and we step forward in light of him. Don't let insecurity and fear define you. Let Jesus define you. Beloved child, God will use your faith and gifts. I think we see that here and throughout the Bible. God will use your faith and your gifts. And the flip side is true is that God will also grow your faith and he'll grow your gifts as you exercise them. Trust God, not yourself. And that might be here, serving on a team here on a Sunday. That might be the case. But there's plenty of other ways to serve, folks. It might be walking alongside someone in gospel community. It might be going visiting someone. It might be setting aside the time that you have or the money that you have to serve others. 
It might be engaging in community outreach. It might be engaging and sharing the gospel with the people around you. There's so many ways that we can function and grow in our faith and function and grow in our gifting. Maybe this right now is God calling you to reflect on your life and not just reflect on your life, folks, but to reflect on your stage of life. To think, to pray, to act on moving forward into this new phase. What is this new phase? I was speaking to a, um, an older pastor last, last Monday. And this older pastor, he was looking to retire probably in the next three, six, seven, eight years. And just chatting through with him, he's, he's close with us as a, a, within the collective. And he's been in ministry for 30 years, pastoring a church, a, a church up in the north of the city for 30 years. And he's never had theological training. Scouts are born and bred, working amongst the people of Liverpool in the north of the city, and he's never had theological training. And we've been looking to, to see if we can kind of help people engage in theological training, and part of this discussion he's been a part of. And he was buzzing because he says, look, he wants to use his next few years of his, of his, of his job before he retires to do that theological training course at the end of his ministry. Why? Because it's a course that we want to put young potential pastors through. Other church planters that are struggling across the city, we want to bring them in to help them. And he's doing it because he said this. He wants to use his retirement well. That's why he's doing it. He wants to use his retirement well. He knows that he's going to have more time. And he's not like, that time's for me. No, I want to use that time for God. How can I use it best? What is the best way for, you, for me to use that time for God? And he wants to use it to get alongside young pastors and planters. Not as a teaching platform, but as a safe, experienced brother in Christ alongside them in the closeness of life because of the experience and life he's got. 30 years of ministry. He's been married for 30 of those years. He's got grown-up kids. He's walked through a lot of hills and valleys in life. What a way to process and think. Is that something that maybe God is calling you to do now? What is the stage of life you are in? What does it look like to move ahead to this new stage? This is what, to sum up, he was saying, how has God made me? What experiences have I got? What time do I have? What resources have I got? Because I want to use them for the glory of God and his people. That's what he was saying. So folks, in what ways has God blessed you? How has God blessed you? What experience has he given you? How has he made you? How can you bless others? What time do you have? Maybe you've been given the gift of a little bit of extra time at the moment. Maybe you want to make some sacrifices to give yourself more time. That's not a bad thing. That's countercultural, I think. Because time is all about money, isn't it? Well, I give up time, I lose money. What would it look like to give up some time, to give up some money so that you're freed up to actually go and love people and serve people in certain ways? How do you make best use of the gifts that you have, the resources that God has given you? What does it look like to sit down and just look, well, what resources have I got? What does it look like to use them well? In sober judgment and faith-filled thinking, we are to use them and see what God does. What do you want the rest of your life to be shaped by? Seriously, I'm asking that question. What do you want the rest of your life to be shaped by from this point on? Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. It's the wonder of the gospel. What do you want the rest of your life to be shaped by? 
And then how do you shape your life around that faithful service? Folks, it's not something you're going to regret. People don't lie on their deathbeds and say, I regret giving of my life to other people so much. So as we come now to take communion, I'm going to put, a, there's going to be a question on the, or a statement on the screen. It just says this, Lord, help me to shape every part of my life around faithful service. I'm just going to leave that there for a few minutes. And what's going to happen is this bread and this wine in just a, a minute, it's going to go around. It's for believers. So if you're not a believer here, we ask that you would let this pass. The, the Bible says, Jesus says that this is for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, for us to engage with him and each other as we do it. So if you don't believe, please let this pass. We'd love to speak to you after about what faith is. Maybe you could say some prayers and think these questions through as we're sharing. But as this bread and this wine goes round, I would like you to hold that bread and hold that wine. It's a gift of grace that we get to do this together. This is a testimony to God's love for us in Christ. These are reminders and displays of God's mercy towards us. So we need to realize that as we hold this bread and, uh, and wine and what they represent, we can't think of ourselves more highly than we are, can we? If you are taking communion and thinking of yourself more highly than you are, you are taking it in an unworthy manner and you should not take it, folks. You should put it down and pray. holding this bread and this wine to see what it took for God to make you right before him in and through the death of his son and the life of his son, that brings a sober judgment of who you are. This communion that we are taking, it helps us to think with the measure of faith that has been assigned to us. As you hold it, plead with Jesus that he will be the apple of your eye. Ask him for help in that. As a member of this local body of believers so I'm going to pray in a second and as I pray the guys are going to come up there'll be some music playing in the background the bread and the wine will go around please take it think that through maybe some of the other questions that I have shared and shaped with you this is the time to ask for God for help in those things for us to ask for clarity to remove any fear any insecurity to ask for help where do I need to step in Spur me on, Lord, by your spirit to walk in love and trust in this local body of believers. And then we'll sing together. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the grace that you've displayed towards us. We thank you for the mercy that you pour out upon us. Father, we thank you that we can sit here and hear from your word. We can sing your praises. We can be part of this people. We don't deserve it. Father, we deserve punishment, but we receive mercy. We receive mercy all from your good hand. Father, thank you. Thank you for that mercy. Please, by your spirit, help us to be able to experience and respond to that mercy with everything that we have. Father, if the things that we need to confess, I pray that you will bring them to mind now and help us to confess them. But to confess them in the assurance that our sins have been forgiven, they have gone. As far as the east is from the west, they've been removed. And Father, remind us of that life that you have placed within us. That we can step forward from this place, looking forward to the rest of our lives, the days that you have given us, because we can use them in service of you. Knowing that that doesn't mean that every day is going to be a happy day. 
that there are going to be many trials, there are going to be many things that have come our way, but Father, with you, we can walk through them and we can serve your people through them. Father, make this church, make this body of believers a, a family of servants, one to another that serves each other so much with such sacrificial, radical love that the, the world just looks in and is blown away by our generosity, by our service, by our sacrifice, and eyes and hearts are lifted to see the wonderful truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.